I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Billy Porter has a Tony for Kinky Boots, a Grammy for Kinky Boots, and an Emmy for his role as Pray Tell in the television show Pose. But even if you didn't know any of that, you probably heard about that black velvet tuxedo gown Porter wore to the Oscars in 2019. It was an instant sensation and made the popular actor and singer an instant cultural icon. We talked all about that moment and how once he was true to himself, his career really took off. And we talked politics. Porter loves to talk about politics and explains during our conversation about the coronavirus why he could never be a politician. Because I cuss and I tell the truth too much. Hear it all right now. Billy Porter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we got to get the big news out of the way first, and that is the Met Gala. You and Vogue teamed up to do, what was it called? Hashtag Met Gala Challenge. It was people going on Instagram to recreate the fashions that have come through the red carpet. Where'd this idea come from? Was it yours or was it Anna Wintour's? Well, we started it, me and my team started it with my own personal social media platform and audience. And, you know, with all the fabulous that I am and the stuff that people know me for, I don't think a lot of people realize how political I am and how serious I am. And so in this pandemic time, I wanted to give my people like something to distract them a little bit Mm -hmm. while simultaneously not having to engage myself because I don't really feel very fashion oriented right now. I don't feel very silly right now. Like I'm having a hard time sort of mustering energy to just kind of be goofy and silly online. I want to push you on that. Because at the Met Gala last year was when you were brought in as, I guess, a sun goddess or Cleopatra. Sun goddess. And, and um, it was at the Oscars in 2019 when you showed up in a, in a black Christian Siriano tuxedo gown. And I saw the, the Instagram post or the social media. It just blew up. And it was such an iconic moment. Do you understand just how big that Oscar gown you wore was? Yeah, I understand on paper. Um, I understand in theory. It's a really heady experience, you know, because I just found the space over you know, the 50 years of my life to kind of just stand in my truth and give zero Fs to anybody or anything Mm -hmm. and really just be authentic. And so my choice to do that wasn't about going viral. My choice to do that was, that's just what my spirit led me to do. And, you know, there are conversations that need to be had in this world. And when one has a platform, as I have been able to build and create, especially over the last couple of years, I do understand the power and the impact that something like that could have. 
I didn't realize how big it could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, it literally, I speak of it as like B-O-A-O -O in terms of my life, <laughs> before Oscar, after Oscar. Like, my life is completely different. And, and that's why I was pushing you on this idea. You were saying you didn't feel like being silly. And yet, before Oscar, after Oscar is a great way to put it, because when you strode across the red carpet in that black velvet tuxedo gown, it was a thunderclap for a whole lot of communities. You know, you told our friend, our mutual good friend, Tamron Hall, on her show, you said you spend a lot of your life, quote unquote, in the masculinity game. Yeah. Talk about that. What, do you, what did you mean by that when you said that? Well, you know, from the moment I could comprehend thought, my masculinity was in question. And in our culture and in our society, masculinity is at the top of the food chain. And if you're not masculine enough, you're dismissed. I was sent to a psychologist when I was five years old in kindergarten after every Wednesday of school to talk to somebody because my family thought I was too much of a sissy. So from the minute I could literally comprehend thought, the messaging I received was, there's something wrong with you and it's based on how you behave. And that needs to be fixed. So I live my whole life in that. And then, you know, I get into show business and it's amplified a hundred times more, mm -hmm. you know? And I spent the first half of my life and my career in that masculinity game, trying to be masculine enough so that I could eat, so that I could get a job, so I could get paid, so I could eat. There came a time in my late 30s, early 40s, late 30s, I would say, mid to late 30s, where I just got sick of it. Mm -hmm. And I extracted myself from that part of the toxicity of what it can mean and leaned into all of the things that I was told would be my liability, all of the things that I had lived as a liability. You know, they weren't wrong. They, the people, were not wrong. You know, I took every hit that I could take not being masculine enough. I took them all. Um, it, you, and then I decided that I didn't care. Right. In, in in your conversation with the great Ryan Murphy, and I want to talk about him in a moment, you, you said in that conversation at 92nd Street Y, you were always told that you were too, too big, mm -hmm. too, too gay. And, and too black, too gay, too black, too whatever. It was too much. <laughs> and back to the conversation you had with Tamron, you said something else that I thought was interesting. You said, when I wasn't telling the truth, I was bankrupt and unemployed. Yep. And so what was that moment when you decided that, you know what, I might be too black and too gay and and too big for y'all, but this is who I am and yeah. this is what I'm going with? Well, I guess, you know, in the mid 90s, I had an R&B record contract on A&M Records and my album came out in September of 1997 on my birthday. And 
my voice, my singing voice was the thing that always saved me. In this instance, it did not. I was trying to be an R&B recording artist. I was too gay for that. And it went away. The whole dream went away. Mm. And then I made a conscious decision that I didn't want to be a clown anymore. The magical fairy queen, queen clown um, in Broadway shows anymore and started to demand humanity. You know, if you want me to come and blow the roof off the joint, give me a human character to play and a reason to be singing like this. And I'll be happy to do it. You know, but this sort of like come in and just, you know, I call it the Millennium Coon Show, you know, and just sort of like sing a song, blow the roof off the joint and then go to your dressing room and shut the up. I, I just, I was done with that. And when I made that decision, the work dried up for me on Broadway very quickly. So here I am with nothing, no work, no prospects of work. And I was about 30 and I looked at it and I just thought, and 9-11 happened and I lost my voice to acid reflux. And I just, you know, in that time, I just thought, what am I doing it all for? You know, it's like the young naive dream was to be a star. What does being a star mean? That's all about the ego. That doesn't have anything to do with the art and the point. And so I shifted my intention. I was watching Oprah one day, as we will all want to do, and they were talking about intention. You know, when your intention is service, everything else will work itself out. And I thought, well, how? Can I be of service in an industry that is inherently narcissistic? Right. You know, it's like, how, what does that look like? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, your authenticity is your service. You owning everything that you are, all of the things that everyone is rejecting at this moment, you have to lean into that. That's gonna be the service. And, and that's when I made the decision. And so you you did that in the in the nineties. Fast forward to Pose and Ryan Murphy, and you said that he said to you during one of the shoots, "Lean into the joy." Yeah, he took me to lunch. Oh, he took you. He took you to lunch. And I'm bringing this up because you were you were just describing. You know, how do you you live a life with intention? Be authentic. But then after realizing all that, and here you have this moment with Ryan Murphy and you're holding back. After all the things you went through and you're, you're at that point, and here's this person who's letting you know, you think you're... I see you. Well, that's the key thing. He's saying to you, will you tell the story? He's saying, I see you and to relax. Yeah. I, well, it was the first, the, Ryan directed the first two episodes. I was doing Kinky Boots at the time and shooting during the day. And it was episode one, day one of the very first ball that we ever shot. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing my TV version of Pray Tell, you know, because I'm always told I'm too big. So I was not being big. Mm -hmm. I was doing it for television. Cut. Ryan comes in and he's like, 
I need all of the things. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And he's like, don't worry about being too big. Don't worry about being too much. I got you. And I'm like, all right, once you unleash the Kraken, she can't go back. So <laughs> he's like, unleash the Kraken. Don't worry about it. So then, and I did, and it was fine, and it was great. And then a few months down the line, I was summoned to lunch. And that's when he dropped it on me. And he just said, listen, I'm, I'm going to need you to lean into the joy. You know, I know that it's been really difficult for you. I know what your journey has been. You don't have to worry anymore. I got you. He's like, I've seen episode four and episode six. And this is of season one. Mm -hmm. He's like, we just put together episode four and episode six. You will never, ever, ever have to worry about anybody questioning your talent as an actor ever again. And that has turned out to be true. One thing he said in that 92nd Street Y interview, you went into audition for Pose, but it wasn't a regular audition. You basically, you went there and just talked about Donald Trump for 20 minutes. Okay, so I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because so we're getting is, into the political is, part now. Right. This is why Ryan is so smart. So I went to the initial audition right pre ryan pre anybody with the casting director alexa fogel and i was called in for the dance teacher and i was like you're doing a show about the ball culture in the 80s in los angeles and you're going to not have me in that world that's a waste of your time and mine like i lived this mm -hmm. you know what about one of the and this is after i auditioned I went in, I did the audition, and then I was able to sit out and have a real come to Jesus with Alexa, the, the, the casting director, thank God for my Tony and thank God for my Grammy. Because when I was trying to express these kinds of things earlier in my career, I was labeled hard to work with. I was labeled arrogant. I was labeled whatever. So now I'm coming with a Tony and I can sit with a casting director and go, listen, I feel A, B, C, D, E. Is there any way we can have this conversation? And with that, I said, listen, I lived it. You know, what about one of the mothers of the houses of, or is there anything available like that? Because there was no script. She said, well, and this is when I found out that the, the five ladies were going to be transgender. And I was like, wow, that's a, that is like the most genius thing. Um, I had just spent two weeks directing a play reading at the public theater with three transgender actresses of color. And I said to him, there's a lot of talent and no opportunity. So the girls are gonna need practice. The girls are gonna need somebody like, aren't you gonna need like a father figure or aren't you gonna need somebody like over on the other side who can be just a presence for the girls? And so I said, you know, maybe ask Ryan or whatever. So, Three weeks later, she called me back. She said, Ryan agrees. Um, and he wants you for a callback, for the final callback. And mm -hmm. so I got there. Everybody was in the room who needed to be in the room. And he just started asking me questions. <laughs> and he said, you know, oh, and he had also said to Alexa, if he can be like the MC from Paris is Burning, 
I will create a character for him. So my sides, the, side, the stuff that I was supposed to read as the character, literally was like 15 pages of declarations. <laughs> like there was no scene work. It was just like, demons of all is good. You know, it was just that. You keep going. So, so he, so he, the category is, you know. So I read those declarations. The room went crazy. And then he sat me down and just started asking me questions. Mm-hmm. He started asking me questions about the AIDS crisis, about my activism work, about politics. You know, like he really asked me the stuff that nobody asks me. Uh-huh. And I was in there for like an hour just talking. Well, let me ask you, because this is a cultural conversation, but it's also a political conversation. You and I first met at the White House at an LGBTQ pride party during the Obama years in 2014. So um, you are politically minded and politically aware. This time that we are in, what do you make of it? And what do you say to people who are despairing of the times that we are in? Well, Buddhism says that life is suffering. I just discovered Buddhism recently in the last few few months. And it's really interesting because that concept is not about, it's about the complete acceptance radical acceptance and compassion for the present moment that you're in. And when we can be engaged in the present, then our minds and our hearts and our spirits and our souls can crystallize and focus for what needs to happen in the future. This time is awful. As a Black man of a certain age, as a gay man of a certain age, I've seen this terror before. And the heartening news for me is that I know that love always wins. Now, Frederick Douglass also said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. And we got comfortable. We thought we won something. You know, we got a black president, racism is over. And what we have learned and what we all needed to learn as a collective is that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. If we don't stay engaged, we the people do not stay engaged, everything that we have fought for for centuries can and will go away. You once said the space that we're in, this again was on on Tamron's show, and I'll explain why I keep bringing up her show in a minute. You said the space that we're in we're seemingly so divided is actually historically the moment when the people come together more than ever. You said that in January when things were relatively okay. I mean, things were nuts, (laughs) but we weren't quarantined. We weren't forced to stay at home. We were not dealing with the pandemic. And so how has the pandemic informed that mantra from January? Well, we're in a global reset. And I think it's individual as well as collective. Mother Nature, God, whatever you want to call it, has essentially said, sit your little asses down and think about how you've been behaving. (laughs) 
all of y'all, not just one group, all of y'all, the world. It's a global reset. And we have to be in the space of change and change for good. We have to be in this space, hold the space, and really allow for our hearts and our souls and our spirits to be cracked open once again so that we can move forward with grace. We can move forward with love. You know, this hate that's going on right now, you have to see it. It has to be shown in exactly the way that it's breaking down for people to understand that there's a problem. And there will always be people who don't understand that there's a problem. But right now, I think more people really get it. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate that we have to go all the way to this extreme. But I think it was Senator Hillary Clinton who said, I'm the one thing that stands between you and the apocalypse. <laughs> Did she say that at one point? <laughs> Probably not like that. <laughs> well, I maybe blacked it up. <laughs> See, that's why I can't be a politician because I cuss and I tell the truth too much. But we are in apocalyptic times. We have in America a million plus cases of this virus that's killing folks. Mm -hmm. And he's tweeting, your people are dying. And here's what I say to that. Boris Johnson believed and lived what he was talking about when he fluffed it off. And he ended up in the hospital. In the ICU. If Trump believed what he was telling us, his ass would be sick too. I'm sorry, y'all. The people who are dying are dying at disproportionate rates. Black and brown people are dying at disproportionate rates. Those are the people who generally would vote for somebody else. Listen, we can have conspiracy theories over on our side too. <laughs> I look at it and I go, what else is it? You're letting the people on the front lines in your country risk their lives every day without help. You're bidding against the states for protective equipment to save lives for commerce. Let them eat cake is what I'm reminded of in this moment. Was that Queen Elizabeth? No. Who no. was it? <laughs> Who was it? Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette. Yes, Marie Antoinette. He don't care about us. And it's going to take, it has taken, the bottom to fall out. All of the things that he said he was, he is not in this moment. Taking care of his people, he is not. The economy, he is not. 22 million people are unemployed. That's on his watch, period. And let's roll back the video tapes of when he said this about other presidents. Mm -hmm. Let's remind him and let's remind the world. This is not right. This is not the way it's supposed to be going. Right. But Billy, what does it say or what would it say about America if President Trump is reelected? It would say exactly what it needs to say. You know, and the thing that I've been talking about a lot is we're better than this, we're better than this, we're better than this. People like to spout that and talk about this. We have never been before or now better than this. 
we've never been better. We've tried to be better than this, but we're not. We must own that and then take the necessary steps to change that, period. Get out and vote. That's why I did this song. I got to talk about this song before I got to get off of here. Okay. But, you know, I did my single. Right. Remake of Buffalo Springfields for what it's worth. It came out last Friday. I did it because there used to be a thing called protest music. Mm -hmm. There used to be a time when artists spoke truth to power in droves, not singularly, but everybody. It was a collective voice that did that kind of work. I wanted to use my platform and my powers for good. And we have to get people out to the polls to vote, period. We're in a crisis. There's no time for sitting out. It's no time for taking your toys and going home because your candidate didn't win, because Bernie didn't win. We did that last time. And now you see what has happened. So if y'all want to keep going down this road, then sit at home and don't vote. Like, I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to do. I'm voting. People died for our right to be able to do this. People died. And we just flagrantly take it for granted. And uh, it's like, well, Democracy doesn't work unless everybody is involved and everybody participates. Let me ask you one one last question because I know you you have to go. Um, and I kept bringing up Tamron's show and the things that you said on that show because that was the catalyst for my reaching out to you. Ever since mm -hmm. watching that, I've wanted mm -hmm. to get you on the podcast because of how inspirational you were by how in the moment you were, how you were, your emotions were right there. You could feel how grateful you were in that moment. You can hear how grateful you are in the moment right now. And just before I dialed you up, I happened to find from the, the Tony, so it was a, James Corden, he played on his show, you singing during the commercial, everything's coming up roses. And I tried to pull myself together after watching it because of the unbridled joy that was in that impromptu performance and how that says to, at least to me, here's this person, I'm older than you, Billy, but here's this person who, who, who has been in this business for a long time, has a Tony, has a Grammy, now has an Emmy and who is just reveling in it. And what I would love for you to close out for those people who are furloughed, laid off among the 33 million who have signed up for unemployment benefits and trying to figure out how do I reinvent myself for the post COVID era? What advice would you give them about making it to the next step, whatever that step is? You got to sit in it. You got to sit inside of everything that we're going through right now as a collective and as individuals, you got to sit in it. You got to move through it. Don't compartmentalize it. Don't push it out of the way. You know, we have to stay engaged. We have to stay engaged because the engagement will get us to the glory. 
but we're in this for a reason and we're going to be in it until we learn it. Mm-hmm. We're going to be in it until the lessons are learned. We're going to be in it. It's not going anywhere. COVID may go away, but until we learn how to love each other in spite of our differences, love each other because of our differences, it's never going to work. Billy Porter, Tony Award winner, Grammy Award winner, Emmy Award winner. I'm waiting on the Oscar. Thank I am you. too. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.